I love that hymn, and that, that hymn really, I think, gets us into the topic for tonight. So last week, I was hoping I could get through all of chapter 2 of Hebrews, and I just decided to punt at the end, um, <laughs> rather than rush through all the great stuff at the end of chapter 2. Um, because this really is a, a beautiful book for beholding Jesus in his beauty. And I just didn't want to rush past that. There's a, a great theologian named J.I. Packer, probably one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. Um, he said one time that the preacher's task is to display Christ. There's another man I knew who's passed away now, um, great Bible commentator, Bible scholar named William Lane. And he used to pray regularly that we would pray, he, well, he would pray this way, Lord, open our eyes to see Jesus as more beautiful and believable. If you want to know like, what we're doing here tonight, what we're about, is we're hoping to display Christ so that you might see him as more beautiful and believable. And that happens through the songs we sing, through the prayers. It help, happens, I think, through the community and the welcome. It happens through this church providing hospitality. All of those things are designed to help Jesus be more beautiful and believable. Because that's not an easy thing to have happen. It actually requires the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. Now, when I, when I was thinking about that topic, I thought about that hymn. Who is this? Because when your eyes are open to see who Jesus is, it should always be astonishing and somewhat perplexing. The only way like Jesus is just all right with anybody is if they don't understand who the real Jesus is. The Gospel of John begins this way. Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. But one of the challenges is we tend to think of Jesus as either full of grace or full of truth. But keeping the two of those things together, we either think of him as like the Lord on high or we think of him as the one who empathizes with us and sympathizes with us and dies on a cross. And you really don't understand the fullness of either of those things if you don't have both of them together. And that's what the book of Hebrews is trying to help us see. At the, the middle of chapter 2, where we were at last week, was the writer of the Hebrews, who's writing to a group of Jewish Christians, most likely in Rome, most likely a small group, that's begun to suffer from the persecution under Nero. And it's going to get worse. When we get later in the book, near the end, it talks about how these people have already suffered with joy the confiscation of their property. But they've not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood. The not yet implies that it's coming. And we know that it did come. We know that Nero did things like dip Christians in tar, put them, impale them on stakes, and light them as torches for his garden parties. These people that got this letter, this is what they're soon to be facing. And what does the writer of Hebrews think they need? They need a word of encouragement, which is how he describes this uh, letter at the very end. It's actually really more of a sermon than a letter. And he, address, he calls it a word of exhortation or a word of encouragement. And it's filled with this central theme. Jesus is more beautiful. 
Jesus is greater than anything else that would be a rival to him. Whether it would be angels, and you remember I said, well, in our day, we're not, there's not very many people that are going around, I think, worshiping angels, though there are some, you know, new age and, and whatnot. But it's probably not, you know, that typical Belmont student. But think of angels as impressive things that you would be tempted to worship because they're powerful. And they offer the hope that if you worship them, you too could have power rather than weakness. Later in the book, the writer will say, we need to go meet Jesus outside the city gate because he was crucified on a trash heap. Golgotha, the place of the skull. He was crucified outside the place of the camp, the place of shame. And all those who would follow him need to go to him there. There's always this temptation to want religion to help us feel powerful. And so the writer of the Hebrew says, it may seem that the angels are more powerful, more beautiful, that they could get you what you want if you promise your allegiance to them. But in fact, while it may look like Christ is weaker because he died, in fact, that's what proves that he's greater. That he took on human flesh and he died. And while that may seem like a weakness, it's a weakness that actually proves that he was greater than the things that seem powerful and impressive. And I love this hymn. Who is this? So weak and helpless, child of lowly Hebrew maid. I especially love the um, verse, verse uh, three. Who is this? Behold him shedding. That means look, look. Behold him shedding drops of blood upon the ground. Who is this, despised, rejected, mocked, insulted, beaten, bound? Who is it? Tis our God, who gifts and graces on his church is pouring down. Our God, who gives good gifts to his children, is the one who is shedding blood. Mocked, insulted, beaten. And, and I think sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm kind of content to live sort of this gray existence instead of like the full like technicolor, multicolor, you know, the real highs and the real lows. I don't like to get too down, and so I try to not get too excited about anything. Anybody relate to that? And th this, is, this kind of hymn is like, I love this hymn because it's always trying to fight against that in me. It's saying, like, understand who it is that suffered. That's what we're about tonight. So let's read this, uh, this passage. Read this passage. It's in, uh, we're going to start, actually, in, in Hebrews chapter 2. And uh, I'm going to read, starting in verse 8. Actually, the middle of verse 8, chapter 2. And then I'm going to read a little bit into chapter 3. Now, we're picking up this in the middle, but the writer of Hebrews was quoting an Old Testament passage, right? And I talked some about this uh, last week, but we're going to pick it up here and I'll, I'll help us get back to where we were. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, meaning Jesus, he, that means God, left nothing outside of his, Jesus' control. At present... 
we do not see everything in subjection to Jesus. So even though he's Lord, you look around and it doesn't look like it. But, verse 9, and this is where we're really going to start tonight, but we see him. We don't see everything the way it should be under his control, even though it is. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting, fitting, that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory and its daughters too, should make the founder, or I like the translation, the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, that means sets apart, and those who are sanctified all have one source, namely God. That is why he, meaning Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and this is a quote from the Old Testament, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, another quote, behold, I and the children God has given me. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers, his sisters, his family. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, I told you the hard thing about Hebrews is like every time you're, th you're coming to the end of a little section, it like starts a new theme and like links into the next thing. So forget all the stuff about Moses. We're not going to talk about that tonight. Okay. And in some ways, we're not going to talk so much about the already and the not yet. Right. He is Lord, but we don't see it that way. Where we're going to really pick up tonight is we see Jesus and we're going to look at what are the pictures of Jesus that we see here in these verses that we've read. But first, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you. We do thank you that through your word, you can open our eyes to see Jesus. Help us to never take that for granted. Send your spirit to do that work tonight, that miraculous work, whether we've seen him before or whether this is the first time. Send your spirit to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, what do, we, what do we want to see here? I, I, what I want us to see here is, is the way Jesus radically identifies with his people. 
Remember, like this is part of the heart of the Christian message, that God doesn't love people from long distance. God doesn't love people from a distance. He comes down, lives among his people. Now this is actually more radical than you might think. This verse... Verse, uh, um, where was it? Um, ah, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Is that verse 10, 12, right? Yeah. It's, it's always amazing to me, this verse in 11. It's the middle of 11. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. Now, I like the old King James here, because the King James says brethren, which is a gender-neutral term. So the ladies aren't left out of this. He's speaking a sermon to a congregation. And that's always a hard thing because we don't really have like a collective word you can do like that, right? But this isn't just for the boys, all right? Um, When he's talking here, he's saying, we who are his people, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. And you might think, well, yeah, cool, okay, that's good to know. But if that doesn't stick in your craw a little bit, I want to help you understand why that's such an astonishing statement, It's amazing in light of who Jesus actually is, right? Jesus, the Bible says, is God who took on human flesh. And the people who wrote the New Testament did not come to that conclusion easily. I want you to remember this. Jesus' friends that gathered and went around with him were monotheistic Jewish men. Their whole entire life, they recited the Shema, the Lord our God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It was their motto. It was what distinguished them from the culture they lived in, the Shema. It formed them to what it meant to be Jewish in many ways. So you have to understand what a big deal it is for monotheistic Jewish men to go around and say, you know, That friend of ours, he was actually God. I don't really know how to explain it because God is one, but he was God. It took us a while to get it, but we're fully convinced now. I mean, after all, he was dead and he rose again. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, who's also God, came down upon us. Now, when you read the earliest parts of the New Testament, here's what's fascinating. You don't find the New Testament writers trying to explain the Trinity. They're just confessing this is what happened. The church never sort of sat down and said, hey, this is a good idea. This is a cool doctrine. Let's come up with this cool, mysterious idea called the Trinity. No, the idea of the Trinity comes from trying to make sense of what actually happened. And they didn't have categories. They had to create new categories for what happened, okay? So when it says here, you know, that Jesus is the one who created all things, which the Bible says, that's because they were driven to this conclusion because there was no other way to explain what had happened. The Jews expected a resurrection, A physical resurrection. The Greeks thought that was the worst idea imaginable. 
They thought salvation happened when your body was removed from you because your body was bad, but your spirit was pure. So the Greeks had no idea of bodily resurrection, okay? If you've heard that the Greeks had these, all there were these ideas about resurrection floating around in the first century, it's not true. Not bodily resurrection. The Jews did have that idea, but they were very clear that it was going to happen to everybody on Judgment Day at the end of all time. But all of a sudden, you've got this small group of Jesus followers going around and saying, I know bodily resurrection was supposed to happen to everybody at the end of all time, but you know what? We're having to revise that. Because this friend of ours died and was raised from the dead. And that's blown our categories. We don't know how to explain it. But it was true. It's true. It's true. And this Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. That's amazing in the light of who Jesus is. It's also amazing when you remember who we are. Because the people that he's not ashamed to call brothers are the people that betrayed him. He couldn't even get his friends to stay awake on the night before his crucifixion. He pled with them, guys, just stay up with me a little time. My soul is sorrowful to the point of death. Can't you stay awake with me? And they didn't. Some of these people he says he's not ashamed to call brothers are the people who at the beginning of the week were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and by the end of the week were saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he's not ashamed to call them brothers either. In Acts chapter 2, right, Peter preaches the gospel and the people are cut to the heart when he reminds him that this Jesus, the Messiah that the Lord had promised, you put him to death. And they say, what shall we do? How shall we be saved? And he tells them, pray in the Lord Jesus, repent, be baptized. This promise is for you and your children, right? So who Jesus is and who we are, it's astonishing. These two things shouldn't go together. Jesus and us and him not being ashamed to own us as his own family. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you wanted to disown your family. I've actually had two friends of mine that changed their names because of the relationship that they had with their birth fathers. And they didn't want to have those names anymore. So it's a huge thing. And, um, and I just think about what it would take. Well, listen, we've done plenty of things for Jesus to say, you don't get to keep my name. You don't deserve to have my name. But even though we've done plenty of things to not deserve his name, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed. I just, man, we could just camp out that a long time, but we have to move on. There's this other fascinating little verse here. In, in verse 12, it quotes this Old Testament passage saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, and Jesus is the I in this passage. And it says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now that's a really interesting thing. Not only does Jesus identify with us and, and includes us as his brothers and sisters, but he sits in the midst of us and sings with us. And, and when you look at what he sings, he sings of our joys 
and he sings of our sorrows. It's again, it's another way of expressing his radical identification with his people. Have you ever thought of Jesus being the worship leader? Because that's what the book of Hebrews is saying here. Jesus is the chief worship leader, but he leads in worship, not way up there, like up on a stage somewhere. He leads from right in the midst of the congregation. My, my friend Reggie Kidd, who's a professor, um, has a great book called, I put the name down here, oh yeah, With One Voice, Discovering Christ's Song in Our Midst. He has this great way of saying, you know, Jesus is always in the midst of his people leading us in song. Sometimes he sings like Bach, sometimes like Bubba, and sometimes he sings the blues. Like, in other words, he radically identifies with the people, but he identifies with the people who are a diverse people from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. Jesus sings with us, but he sings in lots of different voices. And it's a beautiful picture that we have here. Because I think sometimes we think, okay, we're kind of down here, and he's up there, and we're like trying to sing to get his attention. Uh, honestly, so many kind of modern, modern songs I hear seem to give the impression like, unless we sing really well and really plead with God, he won't come down and be with us. That's not true at all. Jesus is here with us. He sings in the midst of the congregation. He's the one who leads us in song. Not only that, he takes on flesh to do battle with our enemy. There's a lot of bad teaching about Satan and how he works. There really is. And I can't get into all of it. But notice this passage, Hebrews 2 and Colossians chapter 2, Paul's letter to Colossians, put them together. They're very, very helpful. Because what it says here is that he's destroyed the power of the devil. Right? You see that? He's destroyed the power of the devil. Because he's destroyed, delivered them through fear of death that's held us in slavery. So you see, what he's saying is the power of the devil is this fear of death that holds us in slavery. Now Colossians 2 adds something really important. It explains why or what Jesus did to destroy the power of the devil. In Colossians 2 uh, verses 13 through 15, it says this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of your legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having, by nailing it to the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So here's what the, these, the, the Bible is saying here. The devil has power over us because all those who have sinned against God deserve death. And the devil is the accuser of the brethren. You see this picture in this fascinating passage in Zechariah where it talks about how Yeshua, the high priest, is covered in excrement as he's ministering before the day of the Lord. It usually says filthy clothes in the translations, but it's actually the word for excrement. It's an ugly picture. And it says Satan is there accusing. And if Satan has every right to accuse, because if you stand before God covered in filth, you will die. 
But what does Jesus do on the cross? He disarms the powers and the principalities. How? By taking what charges us with death, and he takes it away. When Jesus dies in the place of sinners, the charge that this one must die is gone. It doesn't exist anymore. And he actually made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over the powers and principalities by dying. In other words, the fear of death is destroyed. That's the power that the devil has, is this fear of death. But what Jesus did at the cross destroys his power by destroying the basis of the accusation. By taking that written code that stands against us and says, you violated God's will, and it says, Jesus says, I take that, and I take the punishment, and that punishment is no longer deserved by these, my children. It's something no angel could do. Only one who has been made like us can live and die in the place of us. And so while it may seem that Jesus' death proves that he's weak, it actually proves that he did what only he could do. Now this being set free from the fear of death, it doesn't mean that death is not a great enemy. You know, one of the great things about college ministry is I don't do a whole lot of funerals. Matter of fact, I've only done two. And if I do a funeral, it's especially sad. I get to do lots of weddings. I get to do lots of premarital counseling. First funeral I did was about 20 years ago, where two students got married out of RUF, got pregnant. One of the babies died in utero. She had to carry both babies to term. It's hard. It's hard. That second baby is now a freshman in college. This was a long time ago. But the second funeral I did was Saturday. A girl who used to be a volunteer leader with the college ministry. A girl whose wedding Wendy and I went to, it was one of our first important dates because we traveled all the way to Hilton Head, South Carolina. She almost broke up with me, Wendy that is. And then we rode back in the car together and things were good after that. I was thinking about all those things this weekend. And, you know, I, here I am, I'm going to have to preach this message. And I don't know what they were thinking. They decided to have the, the slideshow of all the pictures of Jennifer's life right before I had to get up to preach. And you see the pictures of her as a little baby. You see her, I, you see her as I remember her when I met her like 20 years ago. And then you see the pictures as cancer began to ravage her body. And there's no mistaking the fact that death is a great enemy. It is not to be feared for those who are in Christ. She really is in a better place, and there's even something better coming when she will have a glorified body. But death is still a great enemy. It's a great enemy, and we must never make light of that. Second point here. Jesus' radical identification with his people brings real help. Uh, look down at verse 16. It, it talks about how it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Now, 
as soon as you get into Hebrews, you start to enter into some terminology and some ideas that may not be the kinds of things we think of very much. What is a priest anyway? What's the point of a priest? Here it is, in the simplest way I know how to explain it. A priest is someone who intercedes or represents you before God. The, the heart of what it means to be a priest is you intercede. Sometimes you intercede by offering sacrifices, as the Old Testament priest did. The priests also were the ones who led in worship. You know, the Levites, the priests, were the worship leaders in the Old Testament. So it's a two-way representation. And the book of Hebrews, as we get into it, is going to show why all of that priesthood was pointing to the ultimate priest, who is Jesus. The one intercessor, the one mediator, Hebrews is going to say later as we get into this, between God and man, is the man Jesus. Here, they're just beginning to kind of peek at this idea. But, but here's what we need to understand. Only a human being could die for human beings, but only an infinite God could atone for the sins of all his people. The incarnation is the way for those things to make sense. They don't make sense in any other way. It's like, you know, the, the incarnation is this missing piece that makes these stories that didn't seem like they could ever resolve actually resolve in the most beautiful of ways. But the incarnation actually wasn't enough. That may seem like a crazy thing. But listen, if all that Jesus needed to do was die as a punishment for the sins of his people, well, he could have done that as a newborn baby. But the book of Hebrews says he needed to do more than that. He needed to actually become perfect, or you might say become complete, through suffering. Now that's an amazing thing, but that's what it's saying here. He needed to do more than just be born to fully accomplish his work. He also needed to remain faithful through temptation. And it was real suffering for him. As a matter of fact, put it this way, Jesus didn't just come to die, he came to live 33 years, what was considered a, a complete life, a life that we should have lived. He needed to obey where his people had not obeyed, and he was faithful to the very end, enduring suffering that we will never understand. You know, it's one thing to suffer temptation and give in in a minute or two. But what Hebrews is saying, if you can wrap your mind around this, is Jesus never gave in to temptation, and it got harder and harder the longer he lived to finally this temptation, to basically avoid the cross. That was the temptation all the way through. It's the temptation, you know, in the, in the desert, when Satan says, look, I can give you all the kingdoms of this world, just bow down and worship me. And Jesus has to refuse the temptations over and over and over again. But then it finally gets to the point where even his own friends are telling him, you don't need to go to the cross. You remember what he says to Peter when he tells him that? He says, get behind me, Satan. Tells his own friend that because he recognizes it's the same temptation, but it's even more intense now because now it's coming from the mouth of my, one of my best friends. And finally, you get to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prays, Father, if there be any way, let this cup, let this coming sacrifice pass from me. Don't make me go through this. 
And it says that his blood was like great, or his sweat was like drops of blood. Do you see the intensity? It got more and more intense. The longer he lived, the closer he got to the cross, but he never backed down. One of my favorite phrases is in the Gospel of Luke, where it says, at this point, this is after the, the disciples finally figure out who he is, it says, at this point, Jesus set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. And it shows up over and over again in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus set his, fa his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He was undissuaded, but it was not easy. It was not easy. And here's what you need to understand. His suffering didn't begin at the cross. You know that? That might seem like a brand new idea to you. Jesus' suffering began when he was born. When he was born in a feeding trough. He entered what theologians call the state of humiliation. Not getting what he deserved, praise and honor, but living in a feeding trough. And then at eight days old, he gets circumcised. Now, circumcision was a cleansing ritual, but Jesus had no need to be cleansed. He was without sin. And, and he continued for his entire earthly life to suffer. And every bit of his suffering is helpful for us as we think about our own suffering and we wonder whether God cares. There, there's actually a, an ancient... Um, an ancient part of Christian liturgy, which is ancient Christian worship, called the Great Litany. Litany means a list. And maybe some of you have come from traditions where you still do the Great Litany. This version I put on the outline here is from the Moravian Church. I won't get into who the Moravians are, but they're pretty cool. Um, it, it, this is in the Anglican liturgy too. Some Lutheran churches, Catholic churches might use this Great Litany. Listen to this. I love the way it brings out all of the aspects of Jesus' suffering and how every one of them has a benefit and a value to God's people. It says, Preserve us, gracious Lord and God, by all the merits of thy life, by thy human birth and circumcision, by thine obedience, courage, and faithfulness, by thy humility, meekness, and patience, by thine extreme poverty, by thy baptism, fasting, and temptation, by thy griefs and sorrows, by thy prayers and tears, by thy having been despised and rejected, by thine agony and bloody sweat, by thy bonds and scourging, by thy crown of thorns, by thy cross and death, by thy sacred runes and precious blood, by thy dying words, by thy atoning death, by thy rest in the grave. And then it goes on, preserve us, gracious Lord and God. That's a, that's a beautiful prayer. That, that's a good prayer you could use. Everything that Jesus suffered was for his people. And everything in that prayer helps you remember that he understands whatever it is you're struggling with. Now, I want to jump to the end here. Because there's still <laughs> it's just so much stuff. It, it, it describes him as our apostle and high priest in chapter 3. And that's remarkable. This is actually the only place in the Bible that calls Jesus the apostle. You might think, well, that's kind of a weird. Well, the word literally means the sent one. And Jesus is the preeminent sent one. The one who was sent, the one who says, here I am, 
Here I am to do your will. Jesus is the one who says, it's my meat and drink. It's like eating and drinking, sustenance, basic necessities of life for me to do your will. This is, this is what animated Jesus. He's the sent one who lives to speak for his father and do his father's will. But he's also our high priest. Like we said, he can sympathize with us, right? But this, this close connection that Hebrews draws between Jesus, our priest, and our people, I want to give you this one final application of this because I think this is so important. You know, I, I interact with a lot of students who've grown up in church and who get to college and are wondering if they really are still wanting to be part of this thing. And, and a lot of times, as you begin to unpack that, you find that there are stories. There's always a story, you know, as to kind of where people go from here to there, right? And um, often the stories involve suffering and pain. Often they, they involve prolonged disappointment. Now, consider this. We may think that our loneliness is proof that God doesn't really care. But what if in your loneliness you actually have a doorway into understanding what it felt like for Jesus to be our high priest? In, In other words, most of us would do anything to end our loneliness. Matter of fact, we're tempted to do all kinds of things that we think we shouldn't do. Things that betray who we thought we were, if it means being less lonely. Whether it's gossip, whether it's, you know, all kinds of sexual stuff, who knows? The, 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 the temptation to not have to be lonely is huge. And and, and here's what I'm saying. What if, in the midst of your loneliness, feeling it as profoundly as you might be feeling it even right now as I bring it up, what if that actually was a doorway for you to begin to understand what it felt like for Jesus to be Jesus? Because Jesus understood loneliness beyond what you ever will. He did. And here's the thing. He didn't have to. He didn't have to. And here's the thing. While we're sitting here saying, you know, I would do almost anything to not feel like this right now. Jesus was hanging on a cross saying, I don't have to be feeling this way right now. I can can call down legions of angels and end this whole thing right now. But I won't do it. Because of my love for my people. And so the thing that threatens your belief that God is a good God is actually the connection point you have with what it felt like for Jesus to be Jesus. Does that make sense? See, I I think I first began to understand this through a poem. Because I think there are some things that the poets understand better than the theologians. I know that might seem heresy to some of you people. It certainly would have seemed like heresy to me years ago. There's this guy, James Montgomery. We'll close with this poem. He, he wrote this poem, it's a 19th century poem. Um, you may have heard of James Montgomery because he wrote a hymn that we sing sometimes, Hail to the Lord's Anointed, Great David's Greater Son. It's one of his most famous hymns based on Psalm 2. He also wrote 
angels from the realms of glory. So if you like Christmas carols, that's one of the best um, poetically and theologically Christmas carols there is, by the way. But he wrote this, this extended poem on the prayers of Jesus. And I, I've always found this so profound, because here's the thing. I've got to set this up for you. I, I remember when I, early on in my marriage, I had a, a pastor mentor who said this to me, Kevin, you're a good teacher, but if you can't learn to weep with those who weep, you'll never be a pastor. Now, that, that was true, but the way he said it was, was a pretty shame-inducing thing, because I was like, well, what do I do with that? Like, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to make that happen, right? So here I was feeling, like, very ashamed of the fact that I couldn't feel things. And there's lots of reasons for that. There's some trauma. There were some different things that were going into that. But I, I'm here, I'm feeling like, I, I, I'm just feeling ashamed of not being able to feel. And, and I remember Wendy and I, we were driving up in like DC area and I went to this used bookstore like I was wont to do and still am. And I found the complete poetical works of James Montgomery. And I knew he was a hymn writer, so I thought, oh, that's cool. And then I just started flipping open this book and I just came upon this poem about the prayers of Jesus. And when I got to these two stanzas, it was like a lightning bolt just like, you know, just shot me in the heart. It's talking about his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says this, Next, with strong cries and bitter tears, thrice hallowed he that doleful ground, where trembling with mysterious fears, his sweat like blood drops fell around. And being in an agony, he prayed yet more earnestly. It's talking about the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. And then this, ver this, this stanza. Here, oft in spirit, let me kneel. Share in the speechless griefs I see. And while he felt what I should feel, feel all his power of love to me. Break my hard heart and grace supply for him who died for me to die. While he felt what I should feel, feel all his power of love to me. There's a doorway to feeling his love when I realize that he felt what I should feel. Even what I can't feel, even what I'm ashamed that I can't feel, he felt it. Does that make sense? And it's a doorway into feeling his love. There really is something powerful about Jesus, our high priest, who was tempted in every way and suffered in being tempted so that he could help all of those who are tempted. We'll pick up more on this next week. Let me pray.